the main thing when I'm going to wind back a little bit in terms of feasibility, the main things that, that make up a, a feasibility is what are you going to sell your properties for? We'll just talk about build to sell. We won't talk about sort of build and hold right now. What are you going to sell these things for, which ends up being your gross revenue? What is it going to cost you in total? So your total development costs. Hello and welcome to the Help Me Buy Property podcast. Today we're going to talk about the part two of the development feasibilities on how to identify risks for all your development feasibilities or the sites that you're about to acquire. Now, we covered a few key things around the feasibilities in the part one about the cash and cash returns, the internal rate of returns, the factors that turn into or come into play when you're talking about the GRV and the quality of the product that you're going to build. In the part two, what we're going to basically talk about is splitting the construction cost. How are you going to do the build? How are you going to manage the builder? The holding costs, how are they calculated? Understanding how much of the site is allowed for, what cost do you need to consider when you're going to do the feasibilities that is going to give you a direction of whether you should be going ahead to acquire this site or not. We are also going to talk about the pre and the post feasibility returns where 99% of the developers make that mistake and much more. So stay tuned till the very end. Thank you for listening to us. So I guess the best way for construction costs to be able to come up with some sort of ballpark is like if you're building something where there is prior evidence of success is, you know, speak to the Speak to that builder, speak to that developer, speak to other people that are building similar sort of product and get some sort of an idea. It's just a, it is a ballpark, but at least you're, you know, it gives you somewhere to start, start off with. And whether it's, you know, and even in, in your mind, you're going, it's going to be two and, you know, two and a half thousand a square meter or $5,000 a square meter or whatever. Like, like that's, that's sort of the ballpark figure that you can work on to start off with before you sort of fine, fine, fine tune it. Start with something and then, and, and have a good gauge. So let's sort of keep going through some of our other expenses that you've got to get. Make sure that you factor in. Obviously your planning costs, your DA, your cost to, to actually do the DA and, not only do you have to account for the DA, it's any of the council contributions and government levies. So talk to me about council contributions and government levies, Ross. It, it's quite interesting, right? I think um, I'll use this as an example to do a segue. I was assessing this site um, that I was planning to acquire and the person said to me, Oh, there are no open air levies in this council. The council does not charge its open air levy. And I was like, hmm, that's very strange. You know, I've never seen a council not charging that. And so I got a PM to basically, you know, pick up a phone and say, hey, can you call the council and said, and ask them as to what's, what's the goal here, right? And so they're like, oh, we don't charge open air levy, uh, but we do ch- charge council contribution. And be like, oh, and it's the same thing, isn't it? But it's not, you know, from a council's perspective, it's not open air levy are um, allowed or applied for, you know, certain sites and not all the sites. And so while the fees might look slightly differently, they would answer to your question. And so understand that, you know, there might be sites that, you know, these 
these council contributions or infrastructure charges or open air levies or metropolitan levies, etc., might not allow to, uh, uh, apply to. But majority of the cases, the council wants a piece of the pie. Okay, and their piece of the pie is basically them charging a percentage of a development cost to the developer so that they can make that money. Now, mind you that this is on top of any council fees, any titling fees, any council registrations, all of that is separate. This is a, a premium per lot cost that the these, you know, usually these councils would charge. And that's where their way of saying, we are going to put, you know, hand on the head to give you Hey, go ahead, you know, you can go do the building of a council. You know, this is, you know, the king allowing the slave to basically, you know, <laughs> letting them go ahead and build something. Basically, that's what it is. You know, that's how at least I feel about some of these costs. Yes, yeah, exactly. Building in your council, king. So, yeah, and, and so these are ultimately, you know, you shouldn't, ignore these they can be handful you know and can they can go from you know somewhere between three percent to six to seven percent in depending on you know which council are you are you building them in the other government levy that is very talked about is the gst side of things and so understanding the implications of gst and understanding that you can't avoid gst even on a single house even if you're developing a single house is very very important you know ato does not let you walk away from a development without paying GST. Okay. Now, again, this is not tax advice, it's not financial advice. I need to caveat this out. But I want to share my own experience here that I was called on on a site which I did probably eight years ago. And I thought I went through under the radar. You know, it was one of those earlier sites where I did. And I was like, I thought I went under the radar. There's, you know, six years rule. And so it's done and dusted. You know, they, they didn't find out, woohoo, I'll clock in as a profit. I had that money saved, believe it or not. Eight years later, they came back and they said, hey, by the way, this development that you did eight and a half years ago, I think, is here's the bill. Can you please pay this? All right. And uh, my sort of, yeah, my uh, feedback to them was, you know, well, you can't go behind six years, right? Six years is the maximum that you can go, right? So, you know, whatever is begones are begones, you know, <laughs> this is done. And this is the information that they said to me. They said to me, for real estate transactions, there is no limit. We can go back for as long as we want when there is a real estate transaction involved. And so understand that, that there is a clear risk in a lot of these things if you're trying to bypass the system and play the system and, you know, trying to save the GST know that you know the systems are smart and they will catch you if you're not allowing for the gst in the feasibilities you are you know up for a big bill at the very end of course the tax office will say there is no there is no date they'll be like yeah it happened like 20 years ago i want to get my money thank you very much in any case what Moss is saying if you're selling it and you are in the business of flipping properties or you're in the business of property development, factor into GST into your, your GRV, just to throw in a few acronyms in there. I wanted to touch, uh, touch on contributions again. Often you find contributions and levies are going to be, go speak to your local council about where you can find out what those costs are. You will also find that in Greenfield areas, contributions are going to be more expensive than 
infill areas. And why that's the case is because they're going to have to put in new roads, new lights, new playgrounds, new all these sort of new new facilities into a new area. And that's why they're going to have to charge you more for that. Whereas in an infill area, all that stuff's pretty much mostly all in place unless the council is in investing a lot of money into revitalizing the the area. So just be aware of that because they can they can be fairly hefty. Some of the largest contributions would be in land subdivisions where it might be sixty thousand per lot. You know, so it, it is it is important that you factor that in. And let's move on in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of the civils and site preparation and all those sort of site costs. What are the types of expenses here that can we expect to, to factor into our feasibility? Is, is, is that not covered in construction? No, definitely not. I mean, look, I mean, people do assume that, you know, they are co- covered in construction. And yes, you can load some of these costs up as part of the construction contract. But when the builder usually gives the quote, they would always give the quote about the building itself. You know, they would never usually allow for these headworks or civils, etc. And so you need to assume a percentage of a share uh, towards some of these costs. When you talk about headworks, you're talking about, you know, you know, plan ceiling, you're talking about, you know, subdivisions, you're talking about building permits, you're talking about, you know, all of these connection charges to gas, electricity, telephone, etc. all of those people. None of that is cheap, right? You know, it would cost between two to $4,000 for each lot. And so you need to understand that, you know, um, while they are small charges, when you combine them together, you know, they do come up to a hefty bill. Same with civils. When you talk about civils and site prep, you know, all of these things, you know, how much retaining wall is going to go in a particular site based on the walls, uh, based on the slope, you know, what sort of slab is it going to take? What sort of un- under under the soil, you know, reports that you're going to get, you know, is there rock on the site or not? You know, is there any tree removals? You know, all of these things basically comes into play. Uh, where are the services? Is it is the service, you know, just at the uh, in front of the block or do they have to dig in and, you know, bring the services forward? How far do they have to go back? You know, where is the legal point of discharge? You know, where is the stormwater? Where is the stormwater discharge going to happen? All of these things becomes basically part of the civil. And so, you know, from a builder's perspective, they would allow for what happens inside the site. But they would never allow for anything that happens outside the site in the build contract. And so a lot of people do get caught out uh, from a lot of these things. For example, you might need a pump to basically push the water from the end of the site to the front of the street, for example, you know, because the site is sloping at a different direction. Or, you know, uh, Melbourne um, city water causes a lot of issues in relation to the flood levels. Okay? And so they would ask the, the site to drop to a certain level uh, in order to manage the stormwater side of things. So there's little things that, you know, can blow off the cost quite significantly. And so understanding some of these things and discuss, discussing these with civil contractors is quite important so that, you know, you're allowing enough within your site. You know, don't just assume a blended rate for construction cost because your builder said so. Yeah, these are not costs that they'll take into account. That also includes things like demolition, fencing, that's, that's not included. Moving on, legals, quantity surveys, valuations, sales, marketing, all of these, I call them complementary sort of costs, or should I say, you know, like peripherals costs that, you know, people never, you know, consider, you know, valuations. Yeah, all these wonderful add-ons that you have to 
And I know, right? Valuations are bloody expensive. Well, finance, finance costs, which includes your holding costs, a huge portion of your your feasibility. And it's you know the cost to get to get finance for development is no longer cheap. You know, back in back in the day when you could get first tier lending and it was you know a lot a lot cheaper, but then you have to get a whole lot of uh, pre sales. However, if you're talking about commercial lending and if you ever have to go down the path of private lending, very easily you're looking at all up, including establishment costs and everything, you know, 10, 11% per annum on your total borrowing. And that's a hefty amount. If you're borrowing a, a million dollars, that's a hundred thousand. You know, you're, you've got to, a fair chunk of money there. So make sure that you're you're that you don't go slim on what your interest rate rate is. I've seen people sort of say, "Yep, it's six percent or whichever." Great if you're doing sort of pure residential lending. If you're going down the commercial path, it's going to cost you more, and you've got to take into account establishment fees. There's going to be line fees. Exactly what Moss said about, you know, you've got to account for your QS reports and your valuations. They're all a few thousand dollars a pop. So, and then the, the legals, and the legals not only for the finance, but the legals for your construction, JV agreements, any new entities that you're setting up, these all have to be factored into as well. Definitely. And I think holding costs are one of the key areas of risk, especially from JV partners perspective, right? You know, every time you see major risks, you know, from a side perspective, you would see that people do play around with holding costs because people don't understand how they're calculated. It's such a complex calculation, right? You know, when you talk about 11% lending, you know, understand that, you know, a lot of this lending is basically drawdowns based. And so, you know, the effective rate might be different. So it's important to understand how they are calculating some of these numbers in the background too. You know, people call out 6% effective rate or 7% effective rate on a commercial loan. And so gone are those days. They are old days now. These are not new rates anymore where you can get an effective, you know, construction cost at, you know, 6 or 7% anymore. So, and again, holding cost is the biggest factor that can make or break the site as well. And so... You know, the longer you hold the site, the more draining you are, you're draining the profit out of the development, right? So understand, you know, some of these intricacies as well, that if there is an overlap of holding costs changing or you're draining and holding this longer, you are basically, you know, exposed to, you know, lower profits because, you know, that's, the con- you know, I call this a continuous leakage of money. So yeah, it's it's important that, you know, when you're assessing the sites, you are taking good care of some of these things too. Yeah, I was going to say, if there's any time that you want to be, be taking longer when you're um, in a project, it's what you want to probably do it at the very beginning because you're not drawing down on your loan as much, right? Because that, that like like Moss said, you know, it, it's not throughout the whole term of the loan that you're paying, you know, 10, 11%. You're right, it is an you know, yeah, there's drawdowns, it's sort of an S-curve. At, at the end of your project where you are at pretty much peak debt, that is that point where you do not want to be dilly-dallying because that is when you are fully drawn your loan and that's when you are paying maximum amount of money. That's when you want to get it moved on as quickly as possible. Right at the very start, only sort of 
drawing on a little bit of the money. So if you dilly-dally a bit there, you sort of go, yeah, yeah, it's costing me a little bit. But then if you're you're fully drawn at a million, two million, five million, ten million on month 18 of your project, you want to be moving on that pretty quickly. 100%. I mean, especially if you think about bigger loans, right? If you think about $3 million worth of loans, right? You know, I call this burn rate and a lot of people don't think about this. I'm a data person. So, you know, a lot of these numbers, you know, naturally makes a lot more sense. If you think about $3 million of total debt or exposure that you have, and if you're sitting at 11% and you are at your total exposure, you're basically burning $1,100 a day compounded daily. Like imagine that, right? So every week that you are, you know, waiting or losing is basically $7,700 compounded, probably $8,000 down the flush, you know, $8,000 in the flush, gone, right? So it's very, very important that, you know, you're planning the exit as fast and smooth as possible. And so you're not wasting time in, you know, trying to chase that extra 10 or 20 or $30,000. The exit is the key when you are totally, you know, at the total exposure. So, And that's into sales and marketing because you want to get these out, you know, out the door and out the window as quickly as possible. Let's dive into that. And, you know, sales and marketing plays a really important part in property development, right? Um, I, I see people cutting corners on sales and marketing. This is like you need to have the best brand at play. You need to have the best house on display. You need to spend that extra four to five to $10,000 in order to get the maximum DR. You'd extract, you know, all the juice out of the, the lemon or or the orange or the mandarin, right? Because if you're not doing that, you're, you know, cutting costs on that extra 0.1% that the top real estate agent is asking for that, you know, has done massive sales in the area, can has really good, you know, relationships in the local area. Then, you know, you're, you're trying to save on costs that you shouldn't really be saving, you know, in the first place. And so I think that's, you know, the biggest takeaway from my perspective when you talk about sales and marketing, of course, don't overdo, right? You know, no one cares about uh, drone shots when you're building and unoccupied houses. You know, no one cares about 3D walkways or crazy 3D walkways, right? You want to know where people spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, do a decent, set up a decent budget for marketing. Of course, you know, there are places where the drones work and, you know, the 3D, you know, market do does work. Um, but understanding, you know, what type of demographics that you're trying to attract, you know, don't go overspending the money uh, to a market where, you know, you're going to bring a decent product out there and they're going to buy it anyway. But then don't underdo it, assuming that, you know, oh, this is a beautiful product and don't be egotistic about some of these things that, oh, I've built a, you know, amazing product. And so they should, they should buy it because I've built it, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. What do you mean? That's exactly how I treat my projects. I built it. Hey, I will build and they will buy. <laughs> I think people have that this emotional attachment to a lot of these projects, right? And I think, you know, it becomes their baby because, you know, they've been seeing it progress for, you know, one and a half, two years, two and a half years. And so there is that emotional attachment to, you know, seeing it come to life. And so, you know, naturally... You know, people do go overboard. You know, they do uh, not think emotion. They do not think emo- unemotionally about some of these things, and so it creates that that risk in you know 
not spending that money and not getting the GRV that you're trying to really achieve. One more thing that I wanted to really talk about, and this is more from a JV partnerships perspective and how people market some of these sites is the pre-feasibility and the post-feasibility. A lot of people, when they are branding themselves out or they're advertising themselves out, they always tend to show what have they achieved in their prior life. And they don't show pre-feasibility. They always show what I call it, a post-feasibility projected returns, right? And so they might have caught amazing growth. They might have done amazing profits because of this growth that has come through the area, etc. all of those things. And so it's important to understand that, you know, when you are assessing a developer or assessing a builder or assessing a project to invest in, and you are seeking validation and feedback, you are not looking at their post-feasibility returns that they have delivered to their clients. You are actually looking both at pre-feasibility and post-feasibility returns. You know, I've seen numerous sites where a developer has taken a punt and that site was, you know, delivering like 12% or 13% return. And then, you know, when they deliver it, they catch the growth of the tailwind and all of a sudden that returns look like 25 to 30% and, you know, and they are showcasing this out as, oh, look at this. This is an amazing return X, Y, and Z. I always say this to people that it was way too much risk that this developer is taking, you know, and going from that 12% return to 25 to 30% return that could have gone the other way as much. And, and, you know, you would be delivering zero returns. And that is one of the reasons you don't hear about failed development projects because they are not there to show off. You only hear about good development projects because that's what people show off, right? So it's important that, you know, when you're talking about the risks into the feasibilities, this is one of the key elements to, to test and see, you know, how has, has the developer performed in the past and how much risk has they taken within their and within their business as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and it's it's not good marketing to show the failed sites. Doesn't really help you. Well, it's it's authenticity. I think. Look, I think every developer would have had challenges. And if you have if you have never had challenges, and if you say that you know your road was always autobahn for you know five years or 10 years you've been doing developments, then, you know, clearly there is something wrong there, right? So, yeah. Yeah. If you have a track record, if you've, if you've done a few projects and one or two haven't done so well, at least you've got, you know, eight others that you've done well. But if the, if the first few you started at were pop boom, pop boom, yeah, I wouldn't be marketing that right away on your website. I'd be like, hey, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Invested, Hearing two failed sites. Would you like to join me in my next one? It'll be a lucky, it'll be a lucky bit. I get what you say. I get what you're saying there. I think it's, it is, it is important to be, to be, be open and transparent about things. But, uh, I understand if someone says maybe that one we might not tell everyone about. <laughs> Final question, Cheryl. How do we avoid these risks? You know, talk to us a bit about, you know, what should people do? Of course, you know, we've got into a lot of detail about feasibilities and what to look out for. A typical investor or a typical person who is trying to do a development, you know, what's the easiest way or some of the ways to avoid these risks? I think in terms of risk management, making sure that you're, yes, you do your due diligence, but really having an A team who you can 
really leverage off to understand the whole site, the project. What are the things to, to, to look out for? Are there issues around stormwater, easements, you know, trees, that sort of thing? If you've got to do some remediation work or whatever that might be like, the more that you're surrounding yourselves with the right consultants and, and speaking to them about costs and things like that, I feel that you're, you're going to be able to get a better understanding of where your feasibility needs to sit. That's one part of risk management, having the right A team around you. I'd say another part of risk, risk management is just being, I was, I'm not going to say conservative, but just making smart choices around things like not be too incredibly risky around creating a product that is so so out of this you know sort of sticks out like a sore thumb uh, like i said in in a particular market uh, you do want to look for prior evidence of success you might look out for prior evidence of success and layer another level of of premium you know premium quality on top of that however if you're in a suburb where there's nothing like it and you're creating sort of almost like a Taj Mahal type thing, then that's putting yourself at risk. You know, making sure that you're also choosing builders that understand your market, choosing builders that you know going to that financially, managing their cash flow well, they've got a great track record, doesn't mean that nothing will go wrong. It's all about risk management. Development's all about risk management. And Moss is back. It disappeared. I don't know. Something happened. Yeah, you're back. Oh, anyway, I was saying to the audience that at development's all about risk management. It's around making sure that you take the time to do your due diligence on the builder, take the time to make sure that you just speak to all your consultants about the specific costs as well. And try to not create products that are just way too, you know, unusual, way too risky and unusual in, in a particular way. I think you need to be quite experienced in order to introduce a brand new product in a particular market, right? You know, if the townhouses are selling, stick to townhouses. If the townhouses of a particular nature are selling in a particular area, just stick to them. them. Creating a brand new niche in a particular or, or a brand new price point in a brand new market dictates a premium brand or a premium development in itself. People need to recognize the developer and say, oh, yeah, this developer does wonderful stuff. And so if they are creating a new price point. Yes, we will buy it. So, you know, you need to have the runs on the boards before you go down that direction. So stick to the precedents. Stick to, you know, what is available in the area, cater for the major masses, especially when you are coming up uh, or you're just starting off into the development space. So this is your first or the second project. I think some of my key things that, you know, I tend to, you know, mitigate the risks through is engaging the consultants up front, you know, engage the builder up front, engage the architect up front, you know, get that arborist report done up front, you know, get people out there up front, spend some, don't be afraid of spending money on the site in order to do that due diligence and, you know, getting a better quality feasibility done up front, right? A lot of people are scared to, you know, build those relationships and spend that money. Understand that, you know, losing $10,000 is better than losing, you know, $500,000 at the end of 
character development, you know, and two years worth of, you know, gray hair. So uh, it's important that you understand, you know, some of these things in, in the bigger context, right? Also, don't be desperate, right? I see a lot of developers become desperate, you know, because they are keen to prove themselves into going into developments and so they don't create an active pipeline for themselves in anticipation. And so they are desperate to prove that the site works. <laughs> you know, you should be def desperate to prove that the site doesn't work, not desperate to prove that the site works, right? So it's important that, you know, you should always have a negative connotation to the site and the positivity should be influenced by the information that you're getting back through consultants, through, you know, counsel, through builder, through all these, you know, A team that you were talking about. Um, and lastly, and most importantly is, you know, while you're talking about the A team, ensure that either you're educating yourself or doing it with someone who is a lot more experienced than you, right? You know, there's no shame in partnering with someone and being an equity partner as a first-time developer with, you know, other people. You know, we do that quite actively with a lot of our clients where we would collaborate with them or we would help them do it into and then take a small share of the profits. And so there would be a lot of people out there who would provide similar services. And so there is nothing wrong in, you know, partnering with these people or educating yourself and getting to know, you know, other people in the industry as to what they are doing with, you know, one of the key things that I tell my clients is, and, you know, I practice this myself, is that test out bigger developments by, you know, just being a, a sophisticated investor in the development. So you're not taking undue risks, you're not taking, you know, major risks, you know, you're getting paid out upfront or the first one to be paid out and you are just understanding the mechanics of the feasibilities and how some of these numbers work before you put your hand up and do the full scale site yourself and so scaling up as a developer is very very important notice that not every builder is a developer okay a developer is a developer and a builder is a builder you know there is this stigma around or oh, the developer should know the numbers or oh, the builder should know the numbers and they should know how the developments work you know i would say and I've said this, we have talked about this before in one of the podcasts as well, that, you know, developers are, uh, builders are probably the, the most poor developers because numbers is not their forte. So, you know, don't fall into this validation that, you know, just because you have a builder next to you, they understand development quite aggressively as well. So don't be afraid to educate yourself, bring your education up to speed partner with more experienced people, scale up your development, you know, journey. And yes, there is money to be made. And, you know, we've talked a lot of the negatives, but, you know, there is heaps of positive around some of these things as well. Yeah, absolutely. That is the end of it. Thank you for listening to us today. This was a very long episode. We would be talking more about the due diligences and how to do the due diligence in the next episode Keep smiling, stay safe, keep investing, keep developing. This is Cheryl and Moss checking out. Adios. Ciao. Bye.